I'm excited to share the word tonight. I'm excited to open up the scriptures. Uh, we had a couple weeks off there. It was nice just to kind of get away and relax. So I really have no excuse to be tired here today, right? So let's just forget that. But uh, we're talking about a kingdom ethic tonight. And below that, it says, do not judge. Now, that's not the ethic we're talking about, but we'll get to what that ethic is towards the end of this talk. But uh, let's just jump into this. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt judged by someone before? Anyone? Right? Have you ever felt like you were being unfairly treated? Right? Usually when that happens, we get so excited, don't we? Right? All right, you could, you could chuckle a little bit, okay? We don't, okay? We do not. We get upset. We get angry. I think we've all been there. I think we've all had those moments in life where we felt misunderstood or that somebody didn't really understand us correctly or that somebody judged us incorrectly. And you wish you could just have a few minutes where you could sit down with them and talk and kind of, you know, make things right. And it's frustrated, frustrating and sometimes hurtful, I think, for us to experience this. There are always times where either we feel labeled by someone, or perhaps even worse, if we're going to be truthful with ourselves, maybe we label other people sometimes. Maybe we unfairly judge others ourselves. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, and, uh, but I'm, you, know, you, you just want to think of, you know, you think about the world that we live in. Think about the many scandals that have happened over the years, especially public scandals that have been broadcasted all over the t television, all over the radio, and in our day and age, all over social media, all over, everywhere you look, it's like breaking news, right? Uh, there's like this new, new scandal unfolds or something happens. And I asked the question, why are we fascinated by these things in our culture? Why do we focus on them so much? Why are we quick, I think, sometimes to... To, to mock or ridicule or heap on when something like this happens. Um, I remember knowing, seeing someone go through a bit of a scandal and uh, my heart was really going out to them in the time. And I remember thinking to myself, what if every part of my life and every decision that I made was put on TV or the internet or scrutinized by the public? How would I feel about that? How would you feel about such a situation? And so I got to be very careful in my heart because often when we see things like this happen on TV or the news or, you know, people making bad decisions, and sometimes they really are bad decisions, right? There's a human tendency within me that wants to sometimes, you know, point the finger and be like, yeah, yeah, them, them, right? Or look at them. How could they do that? And yet at the end of the day, they are people too. And they have people around them who love them and need them. And as people, we can make the same bad decisions. As people, we can make the same kind of mistakes. We can, you know, miss the mark, if I could say it like that, from time to time. And so we need that same kind of grace in our lives that anyone else needs. We often need people just to have a little bit of grace with us, don't we? And so when you think about the scandals and the things that you see and, you know, things happening like that, you have to ask yourself some questions sometimes. You have to ask yourself, like, you know, do we ever just like having someone to look down on? Do we ever feel redeemed or better about ourselves at the expense of someone else's bad choices or their sins, if you will, being made known public? Would we be as spot-free as we sometimes might be tempted to think we are if people were to follow us around and watch our lives, right? 
And so there's a lot here, and this is heavy. It's a heavy topic. It's heavy to talk about, heavy to think about, right? If everybody got to see, you know, all the things that you did, whether it was, you know, decisions you made in private, um, you know, I bet you none of us would sign up for that. None of us would want that. None of us would want to, to be a part of that. But sometimes if we just put the spotlight on someone else, sometimes you wonder if it maybe is something we like, because then if everyone's looking there, they're not going to be looking right here. And so, John chapter 8, Jesus is involved here in a moment by the Mount of Olives. And that is small writing, and I apologize, so I'm going to read it slow for you, okay? <laughs> but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, it says here. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has, anyone, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, this is a powerful story. This is a story that has a lot of things happening, a lot of uh, motives in the people's hearts happening. But there's lots of missing things in this story as well. Let me explain a few. First of all, why was just this woman brought forward? Have you ever thought this before when you read this, right? Right? Where's, where's the man? Like, what's going on here? Why is it simply just her brought here? You see, she was caught in adultery. You know, you figure it out. I'm not going to unpack that too much, okay? But why was it just her brought forward? Secondly, they seem to be trying to use the law here improperly. They were trying to use the law in order to accuse Jesus of something and to get him in trouble. And not necessarily because they were passionate about following it. You see, it would have been one thing if they didn't have an agenda here, but the agenda here was actually to get Jesus to say something so they can trap him. And so they could have a basis to accuse Jesus of saying something wrong. And third, and I think about this probably too much in my life, okay? But have you ever wondered to yourself, what did Jesus write on the ground? Anyone? Right? I think about this all the time. What did he write on the ground? And we can come up with all sorts of thoughts. We can fill in the blanks, but we'll never actually fully know. Uh, hopefully, like, you know, in like heaven, you get to watch this all play out and we know exactly what was happening, right? But he wrote something on the ground there and something happened in this moment where you had these people wanting to judge this lady. All of a sudden, Jesus asked them or said one thing to them and they went from wanting to throw stones the dropping stones, right? He said to them, who of you without sin? Go ahead, huck a stone. And I think Jesus exposes something here for us. And it's this. 
is that if you're actually, if you're actively looking to accuse and find fault in someone, then make sure that the journey to that starts by looking first at yourself, by looking within, by looking at your own heart. He puts the attention not on this woman. He puts the attention on these men. Who of you without sin? Go ahead. Have at it. Anyone without sin? Throw the first stone. And we often think of this story as the story of the woman caught in adultery. Anyone heard that before, right? Your Bible sometimes have the heading that says the woman caught in adultery just above this section. But I think this story actually has more to do with Jesus' mercy and love and some men who got caught with stones in their hands that day than it does with the woman, per se. And so Jesus says to them, go ahead. If you're, out sin, if you're without sin, if you're without fault, if you're without doing any wrong or not missing the mark yourself, go ahead, throw a stone if that's you. And it says that they just started dropping their stones. Started putting them down, and they walked away. And then Jesus has this conversation with this woman and just restores her dignity. Be an amazing scene. Amen? Be an amazing thing to watch. At least the ending, maybe not the beginning. But it makes me think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, most brilliant sermon ever. I'm just saying that, okay? Because I think it is. And Jesus is preaching here, and he's, we've already gone through chapter 5 and 6, and I'm going to allude to a little bit of that in a second. But in chapter 7, he says these words. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this is a strong teaching of Jesus's. You see, how many times have you ever heard verse one quoted? Anyone? Don't judge me. Anyone? Anyone ever heard this, right? We say this all the time. And sometimes we have to say it because we mean it. Sometimes we say it because we want to justify something in our lives. <laughs> and so we just pull this out conveniently and we're like, don't judge me, right? When, when in fact, we probably know in our hearts that, you know, we're probably doing something that we shouldn't be up to. But there's many times in which we pull out this verse and we've, heard, we've all heard this statement before, do not judge. And so what does that word judge mean? What exactly is the definition? Because the Greek language is a beautiful thing, but it's also a confusing thing. Because depending on, on the context of the situation, the same word or verb, sorry, can mean many different things. You see, the English language is a little bit more simpler than this. And when we understand something in English, sometimes it can have two meanings, and that can throw us off, right? And kind of mess us up. And if we're not properly paying attention to the context, we cannot really understand what that's necessarily trying to say. But the word judge in Greek is the word krino. Everyone look, look at your neighbor and say krino. Krino, right? It's the word krino. That's the Greek verb being used when Jesus says do not judge. It's essentially, if I could say it like this, do not krino, okay? And there's three examples tonight that I want to show us in which the, the word judge is used in the New Testament. Because I think as, as we look at each of these, we're going to see that sometimes we've limited our understanding of the word judge. 
and uh, we don't want to do that. So number one is found in Titus chapter 3 and verse 12. And it says, as soon as I send Artemis and Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Wow. Okay. Because I have decided to winter there. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I don't see the word judge, uh, but it's there. The word crino is there. I have crino to winter there. And so the use of the word crino in Titus 3 verse 12, one of the uses of the word crino is to decide and to dis discern, to distinguish, to resolve, to make a decision about something. In G is Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 telling us do not make any decisions? Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. Because that'd be self-contradictory, wouldn't it? You'd have to make a decision not to make any decisions. So you'd be making one anyways, right? He's not saying not to make decisions, okay? Is Jesus saying whatever you do, make no decisions? I don't think that's what he was getting at. He's not saying not to make decisions or to arrive at conclusions. These are things that we all do and that we all actually need to do, okay? It's healthy. And how many of you know that sometimes we see things differently? Anyone? And we arrive sometimes at different conclusions. And this can cause tension between us from time to time. And so Jesus is not saying, don't make decisions or arrive at conclusions. And just because we make personal decisions or have personal beliefs that are different than other people, it does not necessarily imply that we're judging each other, does it? Right? And, and, and that's tough in the world that we live in. Because sometimes some people think that if you just see things a different way or if you have a different opinion, that all of a sudden you're judging them. And, and to make decisions and to arrive at a conclusion and to hold convictions, these are things that we all do. Just because we have different responses or conclusions to different issues doesn't mean necessarily that we're judging each other as Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. We are allowed to make our own decisions, draw our own conclusions, have a set of convictions, if you will. And we can do this without judging other people personally. And so can we still hold the belief and make a decision, a judgment, crino, that can happen without condemning or writing people completely off? Yes, I believe we can. In fact, I believe we should. We should be able to do this. This is something that we should do, but we got to be careful sometimes when someone sees something different than us <laughs> or, or, or doesn't have the same understanding as us on something in the way in which we approach those discussions. Number two, second use of this word, crino. John chapter 18, verse 31, Pilate said, this is Pilate, the, you know, they're going to him to try to get Jesus judged here. He says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And so, take him yourselves and crino him by your own law. And so the second use of this word crino seems to refer to the court of law. Now, in this case, crino is the judgment that may be inflicted by a judge or a jury. Now, is Jesus saying to do away with the court systems? No, that's not necessarily what he's saying 
here. This is not necessarily what Pilate is conveying. In fact, this is Pilate speaking here. And he's giving instruction on how to deal with Jesus through the courts of law that are in place in this nation. And we all know how this was mismanaged, okay? I'm not going to end the story, but a lot of us know how this goes and how this was mismanaged and didn't even work out properly. But Jesus in Matthew 7 is not suggesting that we do away with the court systems, okay? Jesus isn't going all anti, like, you know, Judge Judy on us, okay? That's not what's happening here, okay? When he says, do not judge, he's not referring to it in the sense of the court of law. The word judge here is the same Greek verb, krino, but alas, it carries many meanings and understanding context is huge when determining its usage in a discussion. The third way that we're going to look at in which this verse this verb is used is in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. It says, therefore judge, therefore crino, nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Therefore, crino, nothing before the appointed time. God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he can expose the motives of our hearts. You see, this third use of the word crino, this isn't something that we do. This is something that God does. This is something that God is fit to do. This is something that God can do. And I think this is the word being used exactly as how Jesus is using it in Matthew chapter 7. Because it involves exposing the darkest darkness and motives of people's hearts, which is not something I want to really do, okay? Another example of this third use of Crino is found in John 7, verse 24. Now check this out. They use the word here twice the same time. Stop judging Crino by mere appearances, but instead judge Crino correctly. So the word is used twice here in this verse of scripture, but Jesus is condemning the third use of the word Crino that we're speaking of, but encourages proper use of the first way we talked about, by making decisions and discerning and distinguishing what is right, okay? Making decisions, yes, absolutely. But judgments in the sense of condemnation we are unfit for. So stop the third use of the word crino, but instead embrace that first use that we looked at and make decisions and distinguish and discern and do those things. You see, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus isn't saying don't make any decisions. He's not saying to get rid of the court systems. Jesus is speaking of a way in which we evaluate, critique, and draw conclusions about each other. A couple ways we can define this then is to, ju to judge someone then is to raise yourself up by lowering another person. It's by putting yourself here and them here. To make a conclusion or an evaluation or a critique of them by lowering them, Right? And making decisions about the motives of their hearts in such a way that you kind of in the process raise yourself up. To, to judge then, we could say it like this, is to confuse action with essence and identity. Okay? It's to confuse action with essence and identity. I've often heard it said that, you know, we judge other people by their actions. And yet, when it comes to ourselves, we're often a little bit more graceful with ourselves, aren't we? 
We judge ourselves by our intentions, right? But this is what I meant. This is actually what I was trying to do. If only you would understand, right? You clearly misunderstood me. I know I made a mistake there, but I really meant this. And so we wait with the hope of a little grace when we make mistakes. And you know what? That's fair. But we also must be willing to dispense that same grace to other people when we feel that they've done something that's hurt us, offended us. You see, judging sometimes is looking at the actions of people and then labeling them, labeling them as that. When in fact, maybe you just made a bad decision. Maybe someone just had a bad day. Maybe they're going through a tough time. We don't know everything that everyone goes through. We don't know what people are experiencing behind the scenes. And judging people is when you see the actions and you declare that as their identity, as like, that's who they are. That's their essence, right? Those things that they did, that actually makes up who they are. How many of us would want to sign up for that kind of treatment? I know I wouldn't. I know I don't want to. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And this verse, I think, shows us that exposing the motives of the heart, that's God's job. That's something he's going to do. It's not ours. He'll expose the motive of, of the heart. He'll show what's hidden in darkness, right? He can see everything. He can see so much more than I could ever see. And we can trust that God is going to do this. Maybe Jesus was saying that judging is when you assume divine responsibility for evaluating the worth or value of another person. Essentially, to, ju to judge is to do God's job because it's his job to judge our hearts, the motives of our hearts. He can see things about me that I can't even, I can't even recognize. And so to judge another, I think Jesus is saying, is to take on a role that's not ours. It's to take on a role that we're not qualified to do, that we're unfit for that service. We're imperfect human beings, much like the people that sometimes, you know, when these scandals happen, I talked about this, we put the spotlight on, right? We too have fallen short. I don't know about you, but I need some grace too sometimes. Romans chapter 2 says this, in verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another... You're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Do the same things. Pastor Yasmin shared a story a little while ago. I think it was from 2 Samuel 12. And it's where Nathan was kind of rebuking this person who did these really bad things. And David spoke up and said, yeah, absolutely, 100%. And then Nathan looks at David and goes, but that's you. And it's like that awkward moment, like, oh, oh, you're talking about me. You see... The truth is, is that God can see what we can't. You know, God blesses us. He uses us. He allows us to be a part of his work in this world. And, and he's very graceful to us. But he wants us to be his and to be about his work, living like he lived, even in how he treated us. And so we just talked about the first point that I want to highlight. Number one, I think Matthew chapter 7 encourages us, don't assume divine responsibility. James chapter 4, verse 11 to 12 says, Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. This goes great with John chapter 8. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? 
And so James, I almost said George, oh my goodness. James warns his readers that when they begin to judge and condemn others, they're assuming the posture of God, not, not the posture of humans. Scott McKnight, author, scholar, Bible teacher, says we must learn to distinguish moral discernment from personal condemnation. The ethic from beyond shapes the society for reconciliation instead of damnation. Kingdom people are called to love, not to act the part of God. I read that in my study this past week, and I felt that was very profound and very strong. And so Jesus follows this section, and he tells this story about planks and specks. How many of you have read this before? Anyone, right? We've all probably read this story before, right? And the original audience would have found this humorous because the image he gives us is of someone with a plank in their eye, okay? So I picked a little bit of a small one today, okay? But just bear with me here, okay? So it'd be like walking around with one of these in your eye, okay? I, I tried to find a bigger two by four. If you could find me one for tomorrow, I'd love it, okay? But you walk around like this, and then you're going up to your brother. Oh, you got a little speck there in your eye. Let me help, right? Oh, another one. Oh, oh, and uh, meanwhile, you have a plank sitting there. And so judging sometimes, I think, we do things without looking into our own hearts and evaluating where are we at in this situation. You see, judging, one author says, is attempting to control somebody through criticizing or shaming or, 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 or underneath it all. It's really about control. You see, I critique you because I want you to do something to serve my purposes or I'm coming at you because you disagree with me. Judging right below the surface has control. You know, think about somebody, a student who gets shamed and like just gets somebody just really yelling at them and shaming them. How many of you know that's not the kind of person who's like, oh, yes, I got shamed. I'm just ready to change now, right? It doesn't work that way, right? Shame doesn't properly motivate or work, but you know what does? Grace, love, mercy, kindness. Anyone ever been corrected before by someone and, 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 and you just got it because of the way they, they communicated to you, right? That's what we're talking about here. Number two, second point. Entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. You see, Jesus is talking here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. And this section that we're reading about today is found in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so the words that we read in Matthew 7 should be taken in context with all the words you read in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 as well, if we're going to be true to the text. And we've all read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. How many of you know the Lord's Prayer? Anyone? Okay. That's where we read about the Lord's Prayer. The disciples ask Jesus, how should we pray? And he teaches them. And so in the Lord's Prayer, you know, we acknowledge the greatness of God and we bring forth our requests to him. But here's something I've noticed that what happens in the Lord's Prayer is that we ask God to forgive us our sins, right? And essentially what we're doing is we're laying our past before him. We're bringing the past before him. And we're saying, forgive us our sins. And help us to forgive others, but forgive us our sins, right? We ask God for our daily bread and give us today our daily bread. What you're essentially doing when you pray that prayer is you're laying your present before him, the present moment. And saying, God, I need you to provide. I need your provision here. I can't do it on my own. I need your provision. And then we pray, you know, deliver us, right, from evil, right? And what you're doing when, when you pray that is you're kind of laying the future before God. But you're, you're really entrusting yourself to him. 
At the core of the prayer, Jesus is inviting ourselves to entrust ourselves to God. He's inviting us to walk down a path, a way of living in this world that very few people take, to live with a, a humble trust that we can trust him, and that we can put our hope in him, and that we can put our faith in him, because he is faithful, amen? And we need to entrust ourselves for God, to God, because he does care for us. But now to judging, and how I relate to other people. Number three, another thing we have to do is this, is we need to entrust others to God as well. We also need to entrust others to God. You see, the prayer is to entrust all of life from God, yourself to God. And perhaps just as important, we need to entrust others to God as well. If you do not entrust others to God, you might be plagued by a desire to control them or to make decisions for them per se. And Jesus is teaching us to entrust ourselves to God and one of the things when we don't do that is that we live in this profound, you know, kind of tension and anxiety sometimes of frustration we find ourselves in. And we have to remember that this isn't about us and them. This is about us entrusting others to God, knowing that God can take care of what God needs to take care of. Amen? How many trust him in that today? Anyone? Right? God can cover it. God has it. We are unique individuals. We don't all think the same, reason the same, vote the same, even believe everything the same. We're unique. You know, and in times, you know, we want to always try to jump in there and just take control. But sometimes the best thing we can do is just entrust someone else to God and saying, God, you know, I know you got this. I know one day you're going to bring to light everything in the darkness. I know that you're going to expose the motives of our hearts. And that includes me. So I, I trust you. I entrust myself to you, and I entrust others to you as well. Number four, we need each other, church. We need each other. You see, entrusting ourselves and others to God is the only way that we're ever going to be able to help anyone. In, in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus says, you hypocrite, which the definition actually essentially means an actor on a stage. That's kind of what he's getting at. He says, remove your plank first, so then maybe you'll be able to see and help other people. And so the starting point is it starts with me searching myself and looking into my own heart and looking into my own life, in which we examine the deepest motives and brokenness of our heart as much as we can see. We face our own brokenness. We face our own depravity first. And how do we help others? Well, we, it starts by asking God, God, where are my planks? God, what are the things that are right in front of me that I seem to be blind to? And I'm looking at everything else, but I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting this. God, where are my planks? Can you remove my planks? And then we surrender them to God. And we ask him for his help. And we ask him, Lord, help me lay this down. Help me not to live like this. Help me not to be like this. We search our hearts. We let God search our hearts. And when someone has done that, when someone has finally done that, searched their own heart and let God search their heart, truly done that in the honesty of laying your soul bare before God, well, that's somebody who can then go out and help others. Amen? That's somebody who can then go out and help other people. Live out of that place church. This is my encouragement for us tonight, that you are just as much in need of God, in need of his mercy, in need of his help, in need of his grace as anyone else is. 
right? I've had some close friends in my life who sometimes have had to, Jordan, you know, <laughs> call me on the mat on stuff. And the way they did it was in such a way that it, it, it spoke to my heart. And I realized, yeah, you're right. You're right. And so we can actually help one another. And I, I think it's beautiful that Jesus in Matthew 7 leaves it open to that. But this comes out of relationship. It comes out of love and it comes out of searching our hearts. And first asking God to show us our planks. But then, then we can help people with their specs. Finally, point five. This is the last point. And this is the kingdom ethic we're talking about here tonight. The kingdom ethic of mercy. Amen? James chapter 2. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Man, I love that saying. Anyone? Mercy triumphs. Mercy triumphs. It triumphs over judgment. It's greater than judgment. It's amazing. Mercy is awesome. You see, mercy is an ethic of kingdom-minded people. We pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And one way in which we can be a part of that work is by being people who are full of mercy. People who love mercy. People who need it, but also want to give it away. People who have been touched by mercy and then turn around and give it to others around us. That's how it's supposed to work. In, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love. Someone say it. Mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. And mercy isn't just something that's like, oh, thanks for your mercy, God. That's great. Awesome. No. No, we love it. We love it. We celebrate it because we recognize sometimes we don't deserve it. But God gives it to us. God gives it to us. So love mercy. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. This is that same sermon where he's teaching this in chapter 7. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they're going to be shown mercy. <laughs> they're going to be shown mercy. And so just as others sin and fall short, so do we. And the scriptures are clear that we are in need of mercy just as much as anyone else. And when we taste and truly receive that mercy, from on high, it becomes easier to share it with other people. It becomes easier to pass it around. You see, a pastor friend of mine once said this to me, and it's funny because Pastor Yasmin apparently talked about this last week in her talk. But a pastor friend, I was being mentored by him when I was in Winnipeg. He used to always say to me, you know, we always get upset when people sin differently than we do. Yes, that's what I said. <laughs> we get upset when people sin differently than we do. And I had to wonder, is that true sometimes, right? That there's a certain line that we can tolerate, but once it's crossed, we lose the ability to show empathy to people or to have understanding. It kind of throws us off. It's tough to relate to. It's tough to comprehend with them. We can understand our own wrongs, but sometimes someone else's wrongs are a bit too much for us. It reminds me of another saying my friend had, same friend, and I know he took it from an author. And it was an old saying of the church that he reworked. He said, you've heard it said, love the sinner, hate the sin. Who's heard that before, right? You've heard it said, love the sinner, hate the sin. Here's what he used to always say to me. He used to always say to me, can I suggest an amendment? Love the sinner and make sure to hate your own sin. I went, wow. <laughs> As kingdom people, we all have struggles. We've all sinned and we all need mercy. The antidote to condemn, condemning or judging that Jesus is talking about, I believe, is to show mercy.
to love mercy, to have it with others. Give to them what you have them give to you. Kingdom people are about creating a culture of mercy. Amen. We live in a world where for many people, mercy is not only something they'd welcome, but it's something that would have the power to change their lives forever if they would just receive it. You see, in John chapter 8, we read the story of Jesus and some men who were caught with stones in their hands that day. And maybe what Jesus wrote on the ground, and I'm making this up, okay, so don't write this down and quote me on this, okay? But you never know, but maybe he wrote something like, don't judge. Maybe he wrote something like, grace works wonders. I don't know. We don't know for sure. I'm just speculating. But by pointing people to examine their own lives and their own hearts in light of judging that woman that day, Jesus had them all dropping their stones and walking away. The Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, right? They just started dropping them. They realized, I'm not fit for this. I can't do this. And so where are you at today? This is where I'm going to land this tonight for us. Is there any way in which you've been judging people? Perhaps confusing actions with identity and essence. Jesus encourages us not to do that and not to be those kind of people. Perhaps you need to bring that tension to the cross today. Perhaps the cross is where we find healing. You see, I know it is. Repentance and confession and agreeing with God. You know, at the cross we find healing. Amen? When we come to him. Maybe the, the, the spirit has spoken to you, right? Not through condemnation, but through conviction. Because condemnation is not what we're looking for here. I don't want anyone feeling condemned. But healthy conviction that you may need to offer mercy to someone today. Maybe there's someone in your path that you just know. You just need to offer them a little bit of mercy. Maybe you, you know someone in their lives who's never experienced it. What would it be like for them to experience the mercy that God has for them? And for you to be a person who could begin showing the actions of Jesus to them. Maybe you're hard on yourself. I know people who are very, very, very tough on themselves. I used to be like that a lot. Still, it still sneaks in there. Not going to lie. And you're tough on yourself, and you never give yourself a break, and maybe you're judging yourself more than anything. Maybe you need to just accept his mercy tonight. Accept his love afresh, amen? Recognizing that he loves you, he cares for you, and he wants to be at work in your life, using you to love him and love other people, amen? Amen, why don't you stand with me tonight? I'm going to pray for us. But what I want us to do tonight is as we worship, just take our hearts before God and just let him speak to us. And so, God, I thank you, Lord, for the mercy you've shown us, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, that you've always had a posture of mercy towards us, even when we don't deserve it, Lord. I give you praise and thanks for it, God. And I just pray that you reveal any way in my heart tonight in which I need to distribute mercy to someone. Reveal ways in our lives tonight, Lord God, in which perhaps we're not even showing mercy to ourselves. But God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the goodness of your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us and speak to our hearts tonight. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Kingdom ethic of mercy. Let's worship him. Let's let him speak to us.